Now, brothers and sisters, we come to God's word. If you will, take out your Bibles with me and open to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Micah is in the latter portions of your Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, I'd encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles on the pew in front of you and open to page 927. Micah chapter 6. Uh, This is not our main text, not going to be up on the screens behind us, so I would encourage everyone to look at it in your own copy of Scripture. We'll be referring back to it a number of times. I think you'll benefit most by looking at it in a copy yourself. Uh, I want to actually start off immediately on our text today, rather than giving an introduction to the text. Uh, I want to start with the text itself, uh, and then we'll work our way out from there. I'm going to be starting in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 8, Micah chapter 6. This is God's word. It says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now today, from that text, we're going to be focusing in on verses 6 through 8. Alright, so those other verses, important, but they, they do honestly hit some themes that we've already covered in the book of Micah. We're going to be focusing in today on verses 6 through 8 specifically. Now, when you hear at the end of verse 8 there, the word justice... It's hard to hear that word, and in our cultural moment today, not immediately think about the conversation surrounding racial justice. Or, you might be thinking about two very high-profile trials going on right now that are getting national attention. The question in both of those trials, what does it look like for true justice to be done? When you see the charge There in verse 8, for us to love kindness, or in the NIV it says to love mercy, we think once again about our cultural moment. What is our duty to the poor, to the oppressed, to the abused? What is our duty as Christians to the displaced, to the refugee, to the immigrant, to the unborn? What does it mean to do justice And to love kindness. Now we will ask that question practically here in a moment. But what is often lost when Christians come to this text particularly is the context. Context. 
Remember, back to grade school, context is what's around a particular text, around a particular word, around a particular phrase. And if we take a verse or a passage and lift it up out of its context, we may or may not get it right. But what we risk is losing the sense of what God's trying to teach with the whole. Right? We need to see a text in its context so that we don't use it in a way that God never intended it to be used. These verses, verses 6 through 8, make two very important points that cannot be missed by us if we simply rush to the question of what justice and mercy are. If we simply rush to that conclusion, we might miss these two very important points that these texts say to us this morning. The first is this. In verses 6 through 8, God is saying that he wants your heart, not just your ritual obedience. God wants your heart, not just your ritual obedience. An Israelite back in Micah's day could give all the right sacrifices and not love the Lord in his heart at all. You could give all the right sacrifices. You could do all of the outward commands. Give all of your outward obedience and not love the Lord in your heart at all. There in verses 6 and 7, he says, what shall I come before the Lord with? Maybe I'll come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old. And the reason he says a year old there is because it would have been a lot easier to just give them right as they were born. But no, we've got to, got to raise them. You're, this is a big sacrifice. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, thousands, tens of thousands, it says, of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? Maybe I'll give the firstborn child that I have. An Israelite could give all the right sacrifices and not love the Lord in his heart. And similarly, we can come to church every time the doors are open. We can give a bunch of money to the church each week. We can pray before our meals. We can do all of these outward things that Christians are supposed to do. But does the Lord have your heart? We don't give sacrifices for our sins anymore. No one in this room, I don't think, is wrestling with the question of whether or not to give the Lord a ram. But we can give all of the outward obedience and do all of the things that people expect of us outwardly that Christians are supposed to do. But do you have the Lord in your heart? Does the Lord have your heart? Because God will not be bought with ritualistic obedience. God will not be bought. In fact, he doesn't need the Israelites' sacrifices and he doesn't need our money. He doesn't need any of it. Everything in the world is his. God says in Psalm 50 that if he were hungry, he would not tell you. If he wanted something, he would not tell you. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Everything on this earth is his already. And so there is nothing that we can give to him that will put him in our debt. There is nothing that we can give to him that will buy his favor. And it doesn't matter if it's thousands and thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers. I mean, he's over-exaggerating here in verse 7 because everything is the Lord's. For centuries, mankind has imagined deities, gods, that related to human beings on a you-scratch-my-back-I-scratch-yours basis. Think about all of the pagan gods that have ever been imagined or created by human beings. 
and the, the interactions that people were supposed to have with those gods. It was always, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. As long as you do something for this God, then it will do something for you. But that's not how the, the Lord works. It's not how it works with the one true God. You don't put God in your debt. He lavishes his grace upon us. And we respond with thanksgiving, with humility, and with worship. We do not put him in our debt. Now we are constantly in his because of his glorious grace that has been lavished on us in Jesus Christ. Listen to how the word sacrifice is used elsewhere in scripture. These verses that we, we, we just read, they start talking about what sacrifices will I give to the Lord? Does the Lord want all of these sacrifices? Listen to the word sacrifice in other places in scripture. For example, Psalm 51. This is right after David had committed that adulterous sin with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed trying to cover it up. In Psalm 51 verse 16, David says, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He's saying there is a sacrifice that the Lord wants from you. It's not the outward ritualistic obedience of a ram, a burnt offering. It's the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart, contrite spirit before the Lord, contrition, sorrow for our sin, repentance, grieving before the Lord because we have disobeyed his commands, coming to him for restoration and forgiveness. Or listen to Psalm 116, also David, Psalm 116, verse 17, where David says, I will offer to you, God, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Thanksgiving is called a sacrifice, right? Coming up on Thanksgiving right now. The thanksgiving in our hearts is a sacrifice that we give to the Lord, right? The Lord wants us to be thankful to him, not just in general, oh, I'm so blessed, I'm thankful, I I acknowledge that, but to experience thanksgiving and give it to him in our hearts, from our hearts. Or listen to the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Remember, he's writing this to people who would have been very familiar with the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament sacrificial system. And Paul is saying, God wants much more than your animals. God wants your body as a living sacrifice. Those sacrifices were killed. This is a living sacrifice. In other words, you've got to give it every day. right? Every day I wake up. This body is the Lord's. My time is the Lord's. My energy is the Lord's. My thoughts are are the Lord's, these hands, these feet, what I do with them, it's the Lord's. That's the sacrifice he's talking about. All of this to say, does the Lord have your heart? Not does he have your church attendance. Not does he have your tithes and offerings, your money each week. Does he have your heart? There's a difference there. 
Because you can do all of the outward things. You can come to church, you can give, and you can do all the things that a Christian is expected to do on the outside. And the Lord not have your heart at all. So let us all examine our hearts this morning. Let us all ask that question of ourselves. Does God actually have my heart or does he only have my outward obedience? And so that's the first thing that we see from this text. Is that the Lord requires more than just your outward obedience. He requires your heart. God wants your heart. But second, we see from these three verses, 6, 7, and 8 in Micah 6. We see that your religion... Your religion must make a difference in the lives of others for it to be a true religion. Our religion, our relationship with God, you could say, it must make a difference in the lives of others. Because an Israelite back in that day could give all the right sacrifices and not lift a finger to help his fellow man. The Lord requires, verse 8, that we do justice and love Kindness, or as the NIV says, love, mercy. You see, sacrifices, in the Israelites' day, sacrifices were essentially how someone dealt with their own selves before the Lord. How can I make myself right before the Lord? I'm going to offer sacrifices for my sin. But justice, kindness, mercy, these things look beyond the self to the well-being of others. You could give all the right sacrifices and only ever be concerned with yourself. Justice and mercy and kindness look beyond self to the good of others. Someone might say, my religion is in here, in my heart. We just talked about this, right? My religion is in my heart, not in outward obedience. My religion is in my heart. Ah, but the book of James tells us faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. There is a way to practice your religion that is essentially inward-focused only. There's a way to practice religion and just be concerned with yourself and your own soul before the Lord. And as long as I'm getting to heaven, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. I'm going to keep myself away from everyone else. I'm going to make sure I am right before the Lord. No, God says your religion must make a difference in the lives of other people. Otherwise, you don't have true religion. You can attend all the church services. You can be in three Bible studies a week. You can spend hours in private prayer and Bible reading. You can attend conferences and seminars. You can be on multiple committees at the church and serve on different teams and then go home and not lift a finger to help your struggling next door neighbor. It's a perfect example of religion That is completely self-centered. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. It was a response to a man who had said, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But then he said to Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself, the text says. Who is my neighbor? How can I get out of this? Right? And Jesus tells a story about a man who was waylaid by robbers and criminals left for dead on the side of the road. But then a priest walks by. Good news. It's a priest. He knows the Lord. Surely he will help, right? Thank the Lord there is someone who knows God that's walking by. But what does he do? He just keeps on going. He avoids it. 
try not to look at that guy over there because then my conscience would feel guilty. I'm just going to keep on going. I've got duties to perform as a priest, you know. I'm going to just keep on going. But then a Levite comes by. Another Israelite, a a man in the, the tribe of Levi where all the priests came from. Surely he knows the Lord. Thank goodness he's coming. He will stop. He will do something. No, he walks right on by. And as Jesus tells this story, he tells it to Jews. And he says, the third man to walk by was a Samaritan. Samaritans were the ungodly pagans of the the area, according to all the Jews. People who didn't know the Lord. The Samaritan comes and stops. The Samaritan comes and shows compassion. The Samaritan comes and helps. You see, the, the Levite, the priest, their religion was outward and it was inwardly focused only. It didn't actually make a difference in the lives of other people. The Samaritan, on the other hand, loved his neighbor. This was the religion of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They would use their devotion to God as an excuse not to help people. It's the Sabbath. We don't heal on the Sabbath. We don't take care of people on the Sabbath. No, we follow God's rules on the Sabbath. You can come back later for us to take care of your physical needs. Right? The Pharisees of Jesus' day, Jesus said at one point they used their service to God as an excuse not to take care of their elderly and aging parents. They called it the law of Korban. Right? They said, Mom, Dad, whatever time I would have given to you, I know you need help, but whatever time I would have given to you, caring for you as, as you go closer and closer to death, I'm, I'm sorry, but that time's given to the Lord. That time's given to God. And I'm, I'm just too holy, Mom and Dad, to help you out. That's what they were saying. They were using the Lord as an excuse not to help their own families. In Matthew 23, starting in verse 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. Here's what he's saying there. Think of eating soup, right? They've got a bowl with a gnat and a camel in it. They're straining out the gnat, but then they choke in on a camel, completely missing the big picture. What was the big picture? Well, the big picture, he says, was there are actually weightier matters of the law. Jesus says, you tithe, right? but you've neglected weightier matters of the law. Are some commandments from God more important than others? The answer is yes. Yes, they are. Think about Jesus. When someone asked Jesus, Jesus, what, what, what's the most important commandment of them all? They, they're trying to trap him. And Jesus comes back and says, there is one. The most important commandment is love the Lord your God with everything you have. And then he says, I'll give you a second. There's even a number two. The second most important commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes, you tithe, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You've missed the big picture. And so, Brothers and sisters, you shouldn't stop going to church. That's not what we're saying here. You shouldn't stop attending Bible studies. You shouldn't stop giving offerings to God. 
But if your devotion to God is not changing the way you treat people, it's not true religion. Now, quickly, a warning to parents, which includes me. We can, parents, we can become so self-centered in our family lives that we essentially have no time for justice and kindness and mercy toward others. We can fill our lives with so many activities, and they're all about us, 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 that we just don't have time to minister to other people. We've got to be careful about this. It's so easy to do. It is so easy to do, right? We've got, we've got ball games on Monday. We've got practice on Tuesday. We've got church on Wednesday. We've got this on Thursday. We've got this on Friday. We've got this on Saturday. We just don't have time to, to minister to anyone's needs. We, we literally don't. We're, we're too busy with us doing things for us. Parents, Are we, through our actions, teaching our kids that our lives are all about us? Remember, what you teach your kids is not just what you say to them. It's what you show them. What do they see in our lives? How are we teaching our kids with the way that we live and the way that we act? Are we teaching our kids that our lives are all about us? Brothers and sisters, God wants us to spread kindness and justice to those we come in contact with in our lives. And the true sacrifice to the Lord, the true sacrifice is giving of yourself for the good of others. Our bodies as living sacrifices, and part of that means giving of yourself for the good of others. Listen once again to the way that the rest of Scripture uses the word sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good, And to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Doing good, sharing what we have, it's a sacrifice to the Lord. That's the sacrifice that is pleasing to him. Or listen to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58 is a very interesting chapter. It's all about fasting, but the Lord is calling the Israelites out for the ways that they fast. In chapter 58, Isaiah, it says... Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That last phrase right there, not to hide yourself from your own flesh, means don't close yourself off to your fellow man and his needs. Right? That's the fasting that the Lord wants from us. Not just one day every now and then to go without food and to say, oh, I'm so holy. But to sacrifice your life day in and day out for the good of others. Our religion, brothers and sisters, must make a difference in other people's lives or it is no religion at all. The change that God has wrought in our hearts by his grace must work itself out in love and service to other people or he has not changed our hearts at all. And so let's ask practically. We said we were going to do this. 
What does it actually look like to do justice and to love kindness? What does it actually look like? If you pay attention to the cultural conversation right now, you won't go long before you hear something about justice. And it also won't take you long to realize there are all kinds of different definitions of what justice actually is. Are you doing enough justice? Well, according to who? What is justice according to God's own word? What does it mean to love kindness or to extend mercy? Let me give you just a couple places in the the New Testament that help me with this question. One is James chapter 2, verse 15. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, as I read that text, notice what it's saying. It's saying, if we as Christians, who call ourselves Christians, we see someone in need, and especially, James says, if it's a brother or sister. In other words, you're not in charge of fixing the the problem of world hunger. You can't be responsible for every person who has a need. But a brother or sister comes to you and says they're poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. If we say to them, I'll pray for you and then do nothing, James is saying that's essentially worthless. I know prayer is powerful. I know. But a lot of times what we're doing is really saying, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I'll pray, right? I'll ask the Lord to send someone else to do that, right? When in reality, it might have been us that the Lord sent to fix that problem. How does the Lord fix problems? Is he going to drop manna from heaven in that person's life? Or is he going to bring a person along who's going to help, who's going to sacrifice, who's going to take the time? Listen to John the Baptist's words. When John the Baptist was preaching in Luke 3... He told the people, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then the crowds asked him, Luke 3, verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. And so what does it mean to show justice and mercy to others? Well, it means to treat everyone the same no matter who they are. Justice is supposed to be blind, right? That's not biblical, but it's an American concept. We don't lift our American values and priorities up to the level of the Bible. But the idea is, I think, has biblical roots. Justice is treating everyone the same no matter who they are. No matter the color of their skin. No matter their economic status. No matter if they live like you, dress like you, or not. What does mercy mean? What does kindness mean? It means the second commandment. We love others as we love ourselves. We treat others as we would want to be treated. 
It's a very biblical and Christ-like way to live. But so few do it. Justice and mercy. Your religion has to work itself out into actually making a difference in the lives of other people. If you're sitting by yourself on your own, blocking out the rest of the world, doing your Bible studies, waiting to get to heaven, that's not Christ-following religion. That's not Christ-following religion. Our religion has to make a difference in the lives of other people. Finally, this morning, I'll leave you with this. Having God's favor is both easier and harder than you think. Having God's favor is both easier and harder than you may think. You can't buy God's favor. There's nothing that you can give to God that he needs. There's no way that you can put him in your debt. He owes you nothing. Verse 7, a thousand rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil, your firstborn child, money, devotion, time, you can't give to him that he should repay you. You can't. Furthermore, we must beware, brothers and sisters, of turning this very text into a legalistic way to earn God's favor. We must beware of looking at this text and saying, oh, okay, so the Lord wants me to do justice and love mercy and treat other people with kindness, and so as long as I do that, then God has to bless me. Right? You can take this text right here and turn it into something that's completely divorced from Jesus and the gospel, right? That any non Christian can do. What's the difference between someone who has Jesus in their heart and Jesus and someone who, who completely doesn't when it comes to this text, right? May we not come to this text and just say, Justice and mercy and kindness. That's what it takes for the Lord to, to let me into heaven. It's not what it's saying. God's grace is completely free. It has already been bought and paid for in full by Jesus and his death on the cross. It's there to any who would come to God in humility and repentance and simply ask for it. God's grace. It's there for free to anyone who would just ask for it in humility and repentance. And in this sense, coming to God is a lot easier than many people think, right? It's a lot easier than many people think. In our human nature, we tend to want to work for something so that we can earn that paycheck. Grace is not like that. Grace is completely free to anyone who will humble themselves and ask for it. So in this way, God's favor is a lot easier. Coming to God is a lot easier than people think, but it's also a lot harder. Because you see, with ritualistic obedience... You do your duty, and then you're done. You get the to-do list from God, you do it, you check it off, and then you walk away thinking you're in his favor because you've done the to-do list, right? God, just give me a list of things to do. I'll do it, I'll check it off, and then I'm done. We have a tendency to want that. We have a human nature that says, give me a checklist, and then I'll do it, and then I'll know that I'm in the Lord's favor. The Israelites started to believe this about sacrifices, we start to believe it about things like church attendance or giving money or staying away from what we've always considered the really bad sins. As long as I do those things, God will be pleased with me. God wants a whole lot more than that. It's going to take a whole lot more than that. God wants your heart. God wants your very heart. 
All of those things must be outworkings of a heart that has been changed by Jesus. Even doing justice and extending mercy or kindness to people, those must be outworkings of a heart that has been changed by Jesus and by the grace of God. Paul says in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that we who were once slaves to sin have become obedient to God's word from the heart. Obedience from the heart. Our obedience as Christians is not a way to buy God's favor. Our obedience as Christians is not a way to buy our way into heaven, to buy our ticket there. Obedience as Christians is a response to the fact that God has already saved us in his grace, full and free. Our obedience is a response to that grace, an outworking of that grace. When you consider a tree, the fruit is not what makes the tree alive. The fruit is the evidence that the tree is alive, that it has life within itself. Do we have the evidence of life in ourselves, of life from God's grace, of a heart that's been changed by Jesus? That's our obedience. Jesus gave us everything he had. And in return, he asked for your heart. Think about that. Jesus gave everything he had. He gave it all to the very end, to the last breath. And in response, he asks for your heart, which is both easier and harder to give than many people think. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses its soul. Yet at the same time, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for me will find it. Will find eternal life for all eternity. Give your heart to Jesus. Give your life. Give it away. And Jesus will take it and give it right back to you. And say, here it is. You keep it for all eternity. Live for me and keep your life for all eternity. Don't live for me and lose it. For all eternity. Right there's a good place for us to stop and to pray and to go to God and to respond to what He has laid on our hearts. Each week here after the sermon, we spend a few minutes in silent prayer so that we can all of us respond to what God has just said to us. God just said all kinds of things to us, and now He wants to hear what we have to say to him. Responding to the Lord's word given this morning. All of us may respond in different ways, which is why we want to give this time for us to respond individually in silent prayer. And after these moments of silent prayer, where we encourage you to go to God, to speak to him, to respond to whatever he's just laid on your heart, then we'll have a time where you come back uh, and our invitation time will come after that where people can respond to the Lord's word publicly if they need to do so. For now... Let's all go to the Lord in silent prayer and respond to him.